Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University. Now your hosts, Doug Sweeney and Kristen Padilla. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. I'm your host, Doug Sweeney. I am here with my co-host, Kristen Padilla, and this is the final week of our series on the topic of Bible publishing with members of the Beeson family active in this work. We hope you're catching a glimpse of the ways in which God continues to use this ministry all around the world and of the ways in which he's using Beeson people to do so. If you're listening to this podcast on the day in which it has dropped, you're listening on the day of our opening convocation of the spring term at Beeson. We have a wide array of events planned on campus this spring. We hope you'll join us in the chapel at 11 o'clock for convocation and then go online to see what else we have in store for you at beesondivinity.com events. While you're on the Beeson website, spend a minute or two browsing in our new audio store where you can purchase Lay Academy courses, older Beeson classes, lectures, sermons, workshops, and more at beesondivinity.com store. All right, Kristen, would you please introduce today's guest and get us started? I sure will. Hello, everyone, and I'm glad to welcome today's guest, Dr. Frank Thielman. Uh, Dr. Thillman is not a stranger to the Beeson podcast, um, but he is Professor of New Testament at Beeson. It's been a while since we've had you on the sh show, I believe, um, so we're glad to have you back. Um, he's been a faculty member since 1989. He serves as the Presbyterian Chair of Divinity. He is the author of a number of books and commentaries, um, including ones on Romans, Ephesians, and Philippians, and he's currently working on a book on Paul. Um, so welcome to the Beeson Podcast, Dr. Dillman. Thank you, Doug and Kristen. Thanks so much. It's a delight to be here. Well, we don't want to talk to you about your books today. We'll have to have you back on the show um, once your Paul, book on Paul comes out. Um, we partic in particular want to have you on the show to talk about your work in Bible, Bible translation. Now, we've had a couple of professors here at Beeson involved in that work. Um, but you in particular have served and continue to serve on the Translation Oversight Committee for the ESV. And so as a way of introduction into today's conversation, can you tell us how you became involved with this uh, Translation Committee? Sure. Back in, it was either 2010 or 2011, I can't remember which, my colleague here at Beeson, Paul House, asked me if I would consider joining the Translation Oversight Committee for the English Standard Version. Uh, they had had a committee member uh, step away to, for other responsibilities, and they wanted to add a, a member as well to the committee. And so I prayerfully considered it and um, talked to the folks at Crossway that published the ESV and decided it would be um, time very well spent. So I, I've been on the Translation Oversight Committee since uh, 2010 or 2011. I can't remember exactly which year. Dr. Thielman, let's just dive right in and help our listeners understand the more scholarly dimension of translating, publishing Bibles. We've, we've had a couple of other Beeson family members on this same podcast series who are on the publishing side of things. It's exciting to have a scholar who is a translator himself and oversees translators on the show. 
tell our listeners just a little bit about what do you have to have in mind and bear in mind just in terms of the philosophy of translating well when you go to translate the Bible? There are a lot of good translations of the Bible out there, and uh, most of them are the product of uh, a particular philosophy or understanding about what translation should be and what it should look like. Um, usually, people who are translators think in terms of translations that are either thought-for-thought -thought translations, where you read a thought unit in the original language and then try to communicate what that thought unit is getting at, try to communicate that meaning in the receptor language, in our case, English. So that would be a um, kind of a thought-for-thought -thought approach. Another approach is what's sometimes called the essentially literal approach, which tries to translate as much as possible the words in the original language with words in the receptor language, uh, words in English, that um, consistently represent what those original words were. That, of course, can't always be done because words just work in different ways in different languages. Languages are not codes. You can't just sort of run them through um, a computer program and come out with the right answer as anybody that's ever tried to uh, run something through Google Translate can maybe relate to. Uh, they're not codes. You, you don't have this sort of one-for-one -one correspondence between a word in an ancient language, for example, and a word in English. So um, most translations are actually sort of on a spectrum, somewhere between thought-for-thought -thought translations, uh, trying to understand thought units in the original language and bring, bringing those over into English. And uh, on the other hand, uh, the other end of the spectrum would be this essentially literal approach, which tries to um, make words in the, in the original language as, uh, translate them as consistently as possible in the receptor language. The essentially literal translation approach has the advantage that you can often see patterns throughout the Bible in the way particular words and concepts are used a little bit more easily than you can sometimes with the, um, with the, what's called the dynamic equivalence approach, the thought-for-thought -thought approach. But um, it, there are lots of good translations out there. Uh, almost all of them are somewhere you know, on a spectrum between these two poles, and um, often it just depends, you know, picking a translation uh, just depends on the purpose for which you want to use it. If, uh, if you're uh, putting the Bible in the hands of a brand new Christian who has come out of a very secular environment, knows nothing about theological language and terms, um, then often the thought-for-thought -thought approach works a bit better. But if you want to do... Um, intense Bible study and uh, really see the consistency of language and themes through the Bible from cover to cover, the essentially literal approach tends to work better. And so the ESV would fall where on that spectrum? 
The ESV is more of an essentially literal translation. So um, its translation philosophy is one that tries as uh, much as possible to translate consistently uh, words in the original language with, with the same or similar words in the English language. Um, uh, and particularly, that's particularly true for theologically important words um, and words that uh, have a, a great importance in the history of Christianity so that people can see how those terms and concepts are anchored in the Bible. You know, the, the reformers knew the original languages amazingly well for the era in which they were working, particularly the ones that worked with Hebrew. I mean, there were very few Hebrew tools <laughs> out there. It was hard to learn Hebrew in the 16th century, um, in the 17th century. And, and yet they did, and they were quite good, actually, uh, at their in their translating. And so it's very helpful if you're studying church history, systematic theology, and so on, it's very helpful to be able to see in the Bible where the terms that the reformers used, where those terms come from. And I think the ESV really helps in that endeavor. Well, you've mentioned that you serve on the Translation Oversight Committee. What is the purpose of such committee? The Translation Oversight Committee uh, for the ESV um, is, uh, it's sort of a gatekeeper committee, so it, its role is to receive questions about the translation, to think about those questions. We, the Translation Oversight Committee recognizes that the English language changes uh, and evolves, so we want to think about ways in which we might be able to better express the original text in English. Um, and uh, occasionally the Translation Oversight Committee has met to uh, entertain revisions to the ESV. Uh, fairly recently, the ESV's text has basically been locked into place so that our role now is more a role of protecting what we have and answering questions that people might have about the translation. Mm. Dr. Thielman, I wonder, you surely have been involved as a New Testament scholar trying to read other ancient materials, not just the Bible, but extra biblical materials as well. Right. And lots of our listeners will know about famous ancient writers, Homer, Plato, Aristotle, others. When you go to translate the Bible, is it the same job as translating Homer and Plato and Aristotle, or is there something unique to Bible translation that isn't just the same as translating other ancient texts? Well, there are similarities, of course, because uh, the biblical texts are ancient texts written in ancient languages that people used every day as their language. And so there are a lot of similarities between uh, translating uh, the Bible as an ancient text and say translating Dante or uh, the Odyssey. Um, on the other hand, 
most people who are interested in translating the Bible are interested in doing so because they be, believe the Bible is God's word and authoritative. So I think it's probably fair to say that uh, there is typically more energy and care poured into trying to get the translation right <laughs> with the biblical text than there would be typically in, say, a translation of Dante or um, even Homer's Odyssey, which is not at all to disparage the really good and hard work of, of translators who do that kind of work. Um, but for example, um, I don't know of an ancient translation, probably somebody can correct me here, but say an ancient translation of Homer that was done by a committee or that a committee weighed in on. Uh, these are usually done by very learned and competent individuals and often what's produced is a very good translation. But you can pick up several different translations of Homer and they'll sound very different and look very different because an individual has done this and um, sometimes it'll be translated quite differently. So I think it's probably fair to say that a lot more human energy goes into trying to get the text right uh, when it's the Bible because it's a sacred text and means a great deal to the people typically that do the translating. The Bible is inspired word of God as you were just talking about and you've kind of already addressed this. You said that there are many good translations out there, but I've had conversations with people, um, church going people who sometimes wonder, um, is this translation trustworthy? Mm -hmm. <laughs> or how do I know which translation um, I should use? Or there, there seems to be a little bit of um, maybe anxiety or fear there. I wonder sure. if you could just speak to those people who are listening who might ask that question as mm -hmm. it relates to the Bible being the Word of God and then uh, wanting to feel confident about their translation. Sure, that's a really good question. Um, and it is important, I think, to think hard about uh, the translations that we read because it is very important that we get the Word of God right. We believe it is a light to our feet and a, a, a lamp to our pathway. And so it's quite important that our path be directed in the correct way. So it's an understandable concern. I do think that most of the translations out there are very good translations put together by honorable, competent people that take their task very seriously and have done really a, quite a good job uh, at doing it. So um, I don't think we need to be anxious about which of the major translations out there uh, we should be reading. Um, and I think we can be confident that when we read a translation of Scripture, whether we're reading it in English or if our first language is in English, if we're reading it in Spanish or French or German or Swahili or whatever it might be, um, I think we can be confident that what we're reading is the Word of God. Um, of course, it's important that the translation be done by competent, serious people who are taking their tasks seriously. But if that has happened, uh, we can be confident that what we are reading is the Word of God and order our lives accordingly. It occurs to me just a minute ago, sitting here listening to you, Frank, that 
you've lived your adult life, your professional life, your ministry life in an age of the proliferation of study Bibles. I mean, yes. it's kind of a blessing. I have a whole bunch of study Bibles at yeah, home on my desk too. and so on. Yeah. And I know you've been involved, particularly with Crossway doing some of these ESV study Bibles. Uh, I just finished playing a tiny little role in the ESV's church history study Bible. Yes, yeah, I have a copy of that. Our own Dr. Bray played a massive role in that. Dr. Beckwith helped with that. And so anyway, lots of us are invested in you more than mm. most of us are invested in doing these study Bibles. Just from a scholarly perspective as a New Testament guy, tell us a little bit about, so what goes into that? What do you think about? What are you worried about? What are you hopeful about when it comes to investing in a study Bible? Well, study Bibles have a, um, have a long and honored history in, in Christian devotion. Um, there was a Geneva study, you know, a Geneva Bible that basically had helpful notes. And I think the reason for study Bibles, the reason that they came into being was that we do need help sometimes understanding these passages of scripture that are often quite culturally um, anchored uh, in an ancient Near Eastern culture or in the Greco-Roman world, what is food offered to idols, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8? Um, what does it mean in Genesis chapter 15 when God um, prophesies to Abraham that Abraham will be gathered to his fathers? I mean, what, what, was, what does that exactly mean? Um, so it's helpful to have a study Bible that has a little note explaining um, what this means or what at least most competent scholars think something like this means. The challenge in working on a study Bible, and I think the challenge uh, for readers in finding a good study Bible, is finding one whose notes don't state the obvious. In other words, you can have study Bibles that you, you read the text of Scripture and then you go down to the note and it just kind of repeats what you've already read <laughs> in the text. So we don't want to do that. On the other hand, um, study Bibles can be too loquacious. They can also just get so long that they basically are trying to be a commentary in concise form. So that, and usually publishers put the brakes on that because that gets way too expensive to publish too many words and there's strict word limits. But that's the challenge in working on a study Bible is to identify the phrases that really need uh, some comment. Uh, but to be sure your comments don't just repeat what's already there or distract from the text. So the idea is to illuminate the text. I would say if you're out there trying to pick a good study Bible, pick one that kind of brings you full circle back to the text so that um, you're not being distracted from the text off into something else, but that you're coming back to the text, understanding it better. You've given your life to the study of the New Testament in its original language and you teach Greek to our students, uh, whereas there are some seminaries uh, that don't, uh, don't require as, as many languages for their MDiv degree program. We require four semesters of Greek and four semesters of Hebrew. Why should pastors and uh, ministers of the gospel choose a degree program like Beeson's 
uh, that requires such a rigorous study of the Bible in its original languages? That's a great question. I'm so glad you asked it because one of the one of the aspects of Beeson that I am most enthusiastic about is our language requirement. It does require a lot of work from our students, but it is work that in in the in as people get out into the ministry, they discover is really practical. It helps them prepare sermons, Sunday school lessons. It helps them in counseling sessions. Um, how does it do that? I mean, how does learning an ancient language help us say in a counseling session with someone? That's a fair question. I once heard John Piper say, and I immediately resonated with it, that one of the great values in studying Hebrew and Greek is that it slows you way down when you read the scriptures. So hopefully we all become very familiar with the scriptures in, in whatever language is our first language, English for, for most of us here. Hopefully we know the scriptures backwards and forwards in English. But they can become so familiar in English that we just kind of rattle over them. And one of the great advantages is in studying them in Greek and Hebrew is that you're just looking at them phrase by phrase. You're slowing yourself way, way down so that you're thinking about what each phrase means. So that's one of the great values, I think. Another great value in studying the original languages is that um, it really increases understanding when we can read these texts in their original language. It's not that you can't understand the gist of what's going on and, and preach a competent sermon just working with the English, but um, as pastors, as uh, people that work in the church who are charged with communicating the Word of God with accuracy and clarity, uh, we want to know it as well as we possibly can. Um, you know, we can't be experts in everything as, as ministers. We can't be time management experts and business experts and so on and so forth. Um, and most of our people in our congregations shouldn't come to us. <laughs> prime, you know, they, they ought to have somebody else giving them financial advice, typically. But we should be experts in the Bible. They should be able to come to us and know that they are sitting with somebody that is competent and knowledgeable and understands the scriptures. And then more and more, one of the great values in studying Greek and Hebrew is that um, we are called upon as ministers to talk to people that have doubts about the integrity of the scriptures, their infallibility, uh, where they came from. There's just so much misinformation out there about, uh, about the scripture and then about its meaning that it's really helpful to be able to uh, talk to people about what the scriptures mean in their original language, to talk to them about the original manuscripts, where they came from. And uh, so I really think the, the study of Greek and Hebrew is, uh, is just almost a requirement for uh, really competent gospel ministry. And I'm so glad that we do it 
well here at Beeson. It's, it's just one of the things I've valued over the years about, about our school. That is a great word, Frank. And if you're listening to this and would like to know more about God's Word, we invite you to come and join our community here at Beeson Divinity School and study with uh, wonderful, godly experts like Frank Thielman, uh, the Bible in the original, the New Testament in Greek. Well, Frank, you know well that we always like to end these podcast interviews uh, by asking our guests a very contemporary spiritual question, and that is, what's the Lord been teaching you recently? We want to end on a note of edification, personal edification uh, for those who are listening. So we ask you, what's God been doing in your life recently? What are you learning from him? Thank you. Well, one of the things the Lord has been impressing on me recently uh, is that we love the scriptures, not just because they're, not because the Bible is just a beautiful book, which it is. It's filled with wonderful stories and filled with beautiful poetry, wonderful imagery. Um, it, it's such an important book for understanding the history of our world and our culture. All those things are good, but we don't worship the Bible. The Bible should take us to Jesus, and the end goal of our study of the scriptures should be a deeper relationship with Jesus. And you know, as somebody that earns a living teaching the scriptures, I have to actually remind myself of this from time to time that it's really important not to so emphasize and focus on the Bible itself that I forget that the goal is to know Jesus better. <laughs> and the scriptures are just this wonderful gift that God has given us to know Jesus better. And that's, that's their purpose. Amen. You have been listening to our brother and friend, Dr. Frank Thielman, who serves as Presbyterian Chair of Divinity here at Beeson Divinity School. Uh, Frank has been on our faculty almost since the beginning of Beeson Divinity School, and uh, he's been a wonderful friend to me just since I've joined us a little less than four years ago. Thank you very much for being with us today, Frank. We thank you, dear listeners, for tuning in. We want to remind you to pray for us and our students, and we say goodbye to you for now. Thank you, Doug and Kristen. It was a delight. Thank you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast. Our theme music is written and performed by Advent Birmingham of the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. Our engineer is Rob Willis. Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. Our co-hosts are Doug Sweeney and myself, Kristen Padilla. Please subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at beesondivinity.com slash podcast or on iTunes.